been studying for all week. So would you turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. And the question in our message today is, does God get angry? Does God get angry? And um, Lamentations chapter 2, as I said uh, last week, and the last two weeks, we've been going through the prophet, the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and we've been looking at this book in particular. We have seen that this book was written in the time of a great upheaval. Jeremiah prophesied for 40 years that Jerusalem would fall, that the Babylonians would come in and they would sweep in and burn the city down, destroying everything and leading the Jews into captivity. Babylon would be modern-day Iraq, if you know where that is on your map. And they led the Jews there, the Babylonians did, after burning their city, pillaging their town, killing many. They led them there in chains, many of them, young and old alike. And for 80 years they sat in the dust of Iraq, awaiting to return to Jerusalem. 80 years. Now, how many of you remember what, what it was like, or, or the story of Joseph and Egypt? And for 400 years the Jews sat in captivity before the time of Moses. And God raised up Moses, and he led the people out of Egypt, even though Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. And you know the, the story of the ten plagues and, and all of that, and the Red Sea opening up and swallowing Pharaoh and his army, and then the wilderness journey. Well, that was the first captivity. The second is here, as they are being led away from Jerusalem after, many, after the time of many kings and the nation rebelled in adultery and, and idolatry and immorality and a lot of different gods and rebellion and against the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah prophesied and prophesied and prophesied and prophesied. But people would not listen to the love of God and they would not heed the warnings that God gave. And so God brought the Babylonians to judge them. So let's read a little bit of chapter 2. So buckle up, all right? These are 22 verses. And in these verses, I want you to begin to highlight or point or underline or whatever you need to do. Notice how many times the Lord is credited for pouring out his wrath and anger upon his own people, okay? So here we go. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob, and in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel, and he has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. And he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand, set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces, laid ruin its strongholds. He's multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden and laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget the Sabbath and the festival. 
In his fierce indignation, he has spurned the king and the priests. The Lord has scorned his altar. He has disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the wall of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line and did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament and they languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders, the daughter of Zion, they sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and they have put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my daughter, of my people, because babies and infants are in the street of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is the bread? Where is the wine? And they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say to you? What can I compare this to, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for your oracles that they are false and misleading. Now you need to circle that verse right there if, you, if, you're, a, if you're a note taker, because we're going to go back there. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you, and they hiss and they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. And in this city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, all your enemies rail against you. And they hiss and they gnash their teeth and they cry, we have swallowed her. Ha ha, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed and he has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watch us. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. And with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, their children of their tender care? Do you guys just, are you getting a picture of what, how bad this is? They're starving to death, and people are eating their own children. This is bad. Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old? You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned us as if to a festival day, and our terrors are on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped. No one survived. And those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Merry Christmas, everyone.
Yeah, that's a tough one, right? For a second time, Jeremiah begins his poem with how. How has this happened? How did this come to be? How, have you ever had that question in your life? How did I get here? How did the situation turn out to be this bad? Has anybody ever been there in the depths? Jeremiah, for the second time as he begins the second stanza of this poem, this next 22 verses, and you remember that it's acrostic, that it's going through the Jewish alphabet, that every one of these stanzas begins with the next sequential letter of the Jewish alphabet. That's a great way to memorize something, by the way. And these poems would have been memorized by many Jews and scholars. And so, as Jeremiah writes, he begins by asking this question, how could these things be? Today in America, if you listen to modern day preaching and the message of the modern church, you would probably come to the conclusion that God never gets angry. That God always forgives without any wrath and without man ever having to repent of anything. If you listen to the voices preaching from some of the most prominent pulpits in our nation, you would hear only of God's love, but I want to warn you that we have yet to see the day of the Lord. Christ came the first time as a baby. He will not come back as a baby again. If you read the Bible, you know that in the book of Revelation that there is coming a day, an advent, where the Lord will return. But it's not on the back of a donkey, is it? It is on the back of a white horse with fire in his eyes and thousands of angels by his side. My brother, he is the Lord of all the earth and shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He will set all his enemies underneath his feet, the Bible says, and he will reconcile this world to himself one way or the other. In other words, if you do not kiss the sun in this lifetime, there is coming a day when you will bow, even if you don't want to. Today in America, there is preaching from the pulpits that seem to depict Jesus is still a baby. Jesus is still on the cross. Jesus is only love. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ will come back in his glory and he will make all things right. He will judge the earth. He is not an unrighteous judge. He will judge the world for what they've done. The day of the Lord will overshadow. The Bible says, Jesus said to his own generation, he said, how will the day of the Son of Man come? He says, it will surely come like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and uh, getting married and going on with life as normal. And then what happened? The flood came in. And in that story, you know that only eight people were saved. Just a very few amount of people. And if you weren't on the boat, you died. Folks, if you aren't in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for you. He is the boat in the end. You've got to be in Him. You've got to belong to Him. You have to have a relationship with Him. 
Everybody outside of Jesus dies the second death. Second, second's much worse than the first. We all, if Jesus tarries, will die the first death. But the second one is an eternal separation from him. Count the number of times, and I, I, you probably lost count, but I actually went through this week and began to count the number of times that the Lord seems to judge his people in anger in this passage. Do you know there are 31 times? God doesn't judge the world in this passage. He is judging his own people. His own people. Number three, um, not only has he set Israel under a cloud, not only has he 31 times pointed out the different reasons why he's angry at Israel, but now Israel has gone from being God's child to God's enemy. How did we get here? How can you start out as God's child and then have verses like this where the Lord pulls back his bow on you? Did you see that? What verse is that? In the beginning there. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. Man, that is a long fall, isn't it? How do you go from being God's child, God's chosen people, to God's enemy? They were chosen. They were, God had set his pleasure and his favor on them. He had blessed them and he had given them the land. He now bends his bow back like an enemy? Isn't it just one reason at the end of the day of why someone goes from being God's child to God's enemy? It's sin. It's not an overnight progression. It, it happens slowly. Slowly our hearts begin to turn to other things. Slowly we begin to compromise. Slowly we begin to surrender and desire other things other than God. And we get away from his word and we get away from his scripture and we get away from praying and walking with him. And before too long, we find ourselves in sin that we thought we would never, ever do. Isn't that right? It's a slow fade. Perhaps never before in the history of the United States do I feel as if we have entered into a time much like that. When the preachers pe preach, peace, peace, peace. And when the prophets mislead the people into feel-good messages, while the majority of God's people stay comfortably in their sin, feeling no need for critical steps towards repentance, reconciliation, or just a plain get out of it, God is not to be blamed for being unmerciful when mankind rejects his warnings and love. Um... My kids are normal kids. Uh, you saw up here today, Hudson, right? They're just normal kids. And they do stuff sometimes, and they get into trouble sometimes. And um, sometimes as a parent, you warn them, right? And you say, hey, uh, I wouldn't do that. Hey, uh, you need to stop. Hey, um, it's about to get real. You ever been there? And they don't listen? What do you have to do? You have to punish them. Maybe, maybe you're a spanker. Maybe you're not. But 
I've, I've put my hand, my right hand of correction on my child before on their, on, on their hind quarters. And uh, brothers and sisters, if they will not heed the warning, the discipline comes. God is a righteous, loving Father. And if you will not heed His warnings, merciful warnings, if you will not listen to His words, then you will listen to His wrath. Because pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world, is it not? After 9-11, when those towers came tumbling down, there were people in church the next Sunday crying out to God. How could this happen? Their false sense of security had been wiped out. And I'm not saying the towers was God's punishment. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to realize that it is oftentimes tragedy that causes people to listen to God's voice when they were not listening to His love. They were not heeding His warnings. And then all of a sudden, the crash and the boom happens in their life and they realize they need God now. Pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How do we go from being God's child to God's enemy? It's a slow fade. But we can be woken up by the sound of the crash. Verse uh, Fourth point, sometimes revival only comes when the old religious system is leveled to the ground. Now listen to me for a second. 586 B.C., there is a temple, Solomon's temple. In other words, they have sacrifices there. They have worship there. Everything had been going on as it had been for 500 years. They had kings. They had priests. They had a system of worship. These people never stopped worshiping God. you understand that? It was the other stuff they were doing on the side they got in trouble for. It was the immorality. It was the idolatry. It was Molech and Baal and all the other gods. It was, it was the Canaanite gods and the Hittite gods. It was the Jebusite gods. It was all these people intermarrying and doing all this stuff. And it wasn't necessarily in, had anything to do with racism or even uh, Different, uh, different cultures marrying or whatever. That's what, not the problem. The problem is compromise and sin. They had added things to their worship. We'll worship God and we'll play around with this. We'll worship God and we'll play around with this idol. Do you think Americans have any idols in their life? Come on, let's be serious. Our idols are not necessarily objects, right? We don't worship uh, statues. We're not bowing down before demonic gods like Molech who burned babies on a grill. But brothers and sisters, we still are sacrificing our infants in America. A million every year. Abortion. think we worship idols the lust of the flesh the pride of life a continual lust for more without con without contentment consumerism drives this season you know that we spend more on Christmas as a nation 
than we give the entire year to missions. Now, good or bad, whatever you think that is, I'm telling you, there is a continual lust for more in our nation. And we never have enough. We just had Black Friday. How many of you loved all the memes on Facebook, right? <laughs> I like some of those. They're pretty funny. But there is a lust for more and more and more. And Paul taught us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you think we have any idols? Sometimes God has to level the religious system and cut it down to the ground and start over. And that's what he did with his temple. He came down and he leveled it all. Could it be that God takes away all the articles of worship so that true worship might be rediscovered? We have a little bit of a story like that here at Forest Avenue. Some of you know about six and a half years ago when I first came, we had just a small group of people. The Lord had almost leveled this place to the ground. We had a building sitting next door that was unusable by any means, and it's getting there now. It's starting to be, won't be much longer. Maybe we'll be able to use that thing again. But it had been abandoned. But it was more than that. It was the heart of the issue. Many people had walked away from this place and abandoned worship because it became burdensome to them, I guess, in some way. Or they felt that maybe this place was heading straight to the grave. In fact, some people gave up and walked away. But there was a remnant of people that were left that began to pray true worship. In other words, they just weren't coming and showing up and singing a couple songs and leaving. They began to spend Thursday nights over at Billie Jean's house in prayer. They began to realize that if God was going to build the house, it would work. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And the reason this church is still alive today is because of those prayers. The reason you're here today is because of those prayers. It's not by accident you walked in. God is building something here that is huge, it's big. But sometimes he has to come along and cut us down to get us to realize that we really need him. He levels the old religious system and starts over. And that's what prayer does. It takes away all of the, the lighting and the instruments and the beautiful voices. It takes away the preacher when you just kneel down in your own home, in your own prayer closet, and it's just you and God, folks, that is the heart of true worship. It's the beginning of something real. When you are real with God, when you're humbly repenting of your sin, when you find Him and you desire Him and you long for His Word, that is true worship. That's the beginning of something real. Sometimes the Lord brings us to our knees. To realize that. Number five, the humility that the Lord's anger produces. Verses 10 and 11 and verses 18 and 19 show us that the anger of the Lord produces more than just the wrath of man. The wrath of man, James tells us, does not produce the righteousness of God. But look at what God's anger produced. The elders sit in silence. The young women bow their heads. The people put on the dust and the sackcloth on their heads the sackcloth on their bodies, that it is a sign of mourning, a sign of humility. The Lord's anger produces repentance and humility. The Lord's 
Anger has removed man's pride. It has removed man's false sense of security so that he trusts and calls upon the name of the Lord. Lastly, the anger of the Lord produces tears. The heart of the people have been wrung out and they've been made to cry out to the Lord and to long for him. God's anger is not all that bad. Sometimes it causes us to be repentant. Um, even as a father, I've seen that in my own children. It's not until I get upset where all of a sudden we have tears, right? <laughs> yeah, I have four daughters, so I'm familiar with tears. How are you? Yeah, you familiar? But uh, yeah, even but even boys can cry when they're in trouble. But the Lord's anger can produce good things. Lastly, the day of his anger he had promised had come. Verse 17, in verse 17 the prophet reminds the people that the Lord had brought this day upon the people not without warning. He reminds them that the Lord has carried out his word. He has purposed in his heart to do so. They had thought the Lord would never bring the day of wrath. They thought that it would never come to their generation. For 40 years, as I said, Jeremiah prophesied it, but they thought it would never happen. And I think this serves as a word of warning to our generation. And for those who often believe that Christ's return may come in some other person's lifetime and not their own, the day of the Lord's anger is a promise. We know it will come like a thief in the night. We know he will come with fire in his eyes. We know he will come to judge the whole earth. We know he will come with angels, 10,000 of them by his side. We know that the angelic host will cover the sky and that people will cry out for the rocks to fall on them. They will ask the hills to open up and cover them. No one will be able to hide from the presence of the Lord on that day. So how can you, an average American family, Christian perhaps, how can you save yourself from a wicked generation that does not consider the Lord's words as something to be heeded or obeyed? How can you? Let me give you a couple of things and we'll close. Number one, run to Jesus. Don't walk. Don't wait. Run. Run to him with everything you have. He is the only one who can save you. In this passage, Jeremiah asks a question, who can heal you? He says it in chapter 2. He says, who can heal you? When God sent his son to earth 2,000 years ago, he answered that question. Jesus Christ can heal you. Run to him with everything you have. Run. Do not wait. Do not stop. Do not look the other way. Do not turn to any other thing. Run to Jesus. Run with all you have. Number two, as quickly as you possibly can, repent and call upon him. Surrender your right to yourself and your claim on your own way of living and give yourself entirely to Jesus and his word. Only then can you be saved. Give yourself entirely. Surrender your right to yourself. Give yourself to his word. And I promise you, 
He will change you from the inside out and transform you. You can be saved in Jesus. Him and Him alone. Number three, you can escape the wrath of God. Jesus is the ark that you must enter into. He will level the temple. He will come back and begin. And You know, the Bible says that judgment must begin at the house of God. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And, and I think what we are seeing today in the American church is a little bit of that. The average Christian goes to church about once every six weeks. Um, we see churches on every street on Sunday morning empty with 15, 20 people there. We are watching America become just as Europe did a generation ago. I was uh, watching a film and it was talking about Europe in, uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. And many of the priests of the Ang Anglican Church were gathering together and talking about what was happening to Europe and what was happening to England. And they said, the people don't want to come anymore. The people aren't heeding God's word anymore. They, they're abandoning worship and they're abandoning fellowship. They're abandoning the church. What are we going to do? And brothers, you can go over there today and you can walk through places that are at best museums because no one meets in them anymore. What's happening in America today is judgment is beginning with the house of God. And in some of these places, the Longing to worship is just not there anymore. And the people would rather be sleeping. They'd rather be doing anything else than worshiping God. They have no desire for it. Only those who are willing to leave this world's ways behind can be saved. Enter into the ark that is Jesus and you can be saved. The fire is coming. The house of God will be judged. The temple of God will be judged. The sanctuary of God will be judged. And this world will be judged. As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of God be. Does God get angry? Yes, He does. But I'm here to tell you, even in the middle of His anger, he pours it out only because he loves us. Think of the verses of Jeremiah that you can quote. Some of you that quote scripture. Which one do you know in Jeremiah? Call it out. And I bet I know exactly which one you're going to call out. Call on me. Number two, Jeremiah what? 29, 11. Anybody quote that one? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, not to harm you. What? to prosper you and give you a hope and a future. Even in the middle of the Lord's anger, He does not want to harm us. He wants to save us. That is, that is the reason He gets angry. Did your dad ever get angry at you? Maybe, maybe he got too angry, I know. But the Lord never, the Lord never abuses he never judges harshly without cause. His anger is meant to bring his children home. Run to Jesus. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father.
We're here to declare you that you are just and righteous. And that you have made a way of salvation. But for those that reject your salvation, Lord, the flood is coming. The fire is coming, Lord. And you have set a day. We don't know when it is. It said the Bible says it will come like a thief in the night. But you have set a day when you will judge all the nations of the earth. And you will put all things underneath your feet. But until that time, you have given men and women and boys and girls the opportunity to run to you. And you will be their ark. And you will be their salvation. I pray this morning that your word goes forth in power and saves those who need it. God, we give you the glory for what you do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship the Lord? Hello, my name is Pastor Brian Taylor of Forest Avenue Baptist Church, and you're listening to our sermon series in the Book of Lamentations. If you wish to contact us, our mailing address is 106 West Forest Avenue, Sherman, Texas, 75090, and our website is www.fabcsherman.com. You can always call our offices at 903-892-3506 for more information. We thank you for listening. Have a great day.